Well, good morning. As you know, Pastor Mike is with the team in South Africa uh, this week and also next week. But this morning, I get the privilege to open the word with you and uh, share some things that God has been teaching me and I am excited to, uh, to bring to you this morning. Uh, one of the great dangers, I think, in the Christian life is the risk that we can become too casual with uh, profound certainties, of becoming too familiar with, with deep truths. And as a result, we come to be in danger of living a shallow response to weighty realities that, uh, that can become cliche when they actually should be the very ground on which we build our entire lives. So, for example, the statement, God loves you, can be thrown around in Christian circles with little understanding or appreciation of what that actually means or what's entailed in the idea that God loves you. The reality of God's love for us actually puts demands on us in response. Demands that are a joy to fulfill when we, when we understand his love, but, but they're demands nonetheless. And so this morning I'd like to consider those demands and consider the love that anchors those demands and the love that enables us to fulfill those demands. You see, God's love is a, is a saving love. It's a sanctifying love. God's love actually changes us and conforms us to the image of his son. And so this morning, I'd like to look at Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 31, and we're actually going to go through chapter 5, verse 2. So if you could turn to that and stand with me for the reading of God's word. You know, much of preaching is actually just uh, reminding. And uh, I think that we're going to be doing uh, just that this morning, is we're just going to be doing some reminding I don't know that there's going to be great truths that will be new to you this morning, but uh, I'd like to do a little reminding this morning. So as we look here at Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 31. Paul says to the Ephesians, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Lord, we come to you this morning and confess that the idea of your love is beyond our full comprehension. God, your love is of a magnitude that should cause us to, uh, to fall to our knees and to beg for your, your uh, forgiveness and to understand that you do forgive us and to, uh, and to bask in the, in the joy that comes from being loved by the one that has created the universe and, that, and the one who loves us with an infinite love. God, may our understanding of that love compel us to live lives that would bring you glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a basic three-point outline, and I'm just going to tell you all the points right now. Uh, we're going to be looking at the impossible mandate, the incomparable model, and the inexhaustible motivation. And so we'll start this morning with the impossible mandate. 
As we look here at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we see a list of commands starting in verse uh, 31 and 32. Actually, this is a continuation of, of a lot of commands that have begun back in verse 25. But there are actually nine different commands here in verses 31 and 32. And of these nine commands, six of them are of the negative variety, don't do this, and three are of the positive, you should do this. But as we consider the Christian life, Jesus said the whole law, all of the commands, everything that entails the Christian life can really be boiled down to two commands, right? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, he said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So the whole Christian life can be boiled down to two things. Love God with everything that's in you and love everybody else. If you can do those two things, you can fulfill basically the whole law. But underlying these commands is a, is a very profound truth. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. So God loves us, and this great reality of God's love and our grasp of that love compels us to love him, and when we love him, we're going to love other people. That's basically the whole sermon. But we'll go a little bit further. What does it look like to love other people then? Well, as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, these, these nine commands give us a summary of what it means, what it looks like to love other people. And specifically regarding love within, within the church family. But let's put this in a little bit in context here in the book of Ephesians. If you turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and look in verse 13. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. You see, when we come to Christ, when we, when we repent of our sins, then we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're his. We belong to him, and he's not going to let go of us. Then we look forward in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and we see a picture of what we were like before we came to Christ. Verse 1 says, And we were dead in our tresp- you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Apart from Christ, we were spiritually dead. We were at the uh, anchored, our young adults group, we were at the, uh, our annual Joshua Tree trip this past uh, October, and uh, there was a group of people sitting around having a conversation all night long. I could hear them. Um, and Brian Zuniga was in the middle of this, by the way. I'm telling on him. And, uh, and they were having a conversation about something that I kept hearing coming up over and over around uh, in different parts of life. And I never understood it. And then I hear our own group talking about it. But they seemed to be very concerned about the zombie apocalypse, about a zombie invasion. And I thought, you know what? I don't know anything about a zombie invasion. And I'm certainly not prepared for any such thing. Now, those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, that's perfectly okay because I really don't know what I'm talking about either. But what I do know is that there's a real live zombie invasion going on all around us. Those who are not in Christ are walking around, yet they're spiritually dead. They're spiritual zombies. 
Here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, then it says in verse 5, He made us alive in Christ. We were brought to life by his grace and we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are his, and in verse 10 it says that we are made to be his workmanship created for good works. Look ahead to Ephesians chapter 4 and verses uh, 22. It says, In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. When we are saved, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, our old self is put away, and we put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. And then continuing here in verse 25 of chapter 4 and through the rest of the book of Ephesians, basically, we get a series of commands regarding how the new self is to live. What does the new self look like? How are we to live in the likeness of God? Or another way to put it is, how do we live to look like Jesus? I'd suggest that this is an impossible calling, an impossible mandate, apart from the supernatural intervention of God himself. Romans 8.29 says that uh, the main purpose of our salvation is that we would be conformed to the image of God's Son. And our salvation makes that possible. We're being made to look like Jesus, made in the likeness of God. The passage we just read here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God. We're to fulfill our nature, our new nature in Christ. We're to imitate God. We're to look like God. Back in uh, Ephesians 1, um, I know we're flipping around Ephesians, but I want you to get a context here. Um, when it says in verse 14 that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, it says we were, that that's for the purpose so that it would be to the praise of his glory. That we are to look like Jesus so that we bring praise to his glory, that we praise and honor and magnify the name of Jesus Christ because we are walking around representing and looking like him. We were dead, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive. Why did he make us alive? He made us alive so that we would look like him and bring him honor and praise. Now here, let's look at the, at the verse right before the passage we're focusing on this morning. Ephesians 4, verse 30. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We should be aware that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you know that God weeps? In Jeremiah it says, God says, my eyes run down with tears. God weeps over sin. Well, what's the point of all this? What's Paul's point? What's the point of don't grieve the Holy Spirit? You know what he's really saying? He's saying, don't act like zombies. Don't act like you are a dead person walking around. God has brought you to life. Stop acting like a zombie. Live like a child of God. Live in a way that you look like God's son. When we live like a spiritual zombie after God's brought us to life, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And part of the definition of being a Christian is that you care about grieving the Holy Spirit. A non-Christian doesn't care about that. But a person who's been regenerated, been brought to life, is going to long to please the Father. So what we have here in Ephesians 4 is really a description of what it means to fulfill that second commandment of how to love other people, how to love our neighbors, and in so doing, reflecting the love of God. 
And again, perfectly fulfilling these commands is impossible when you're spiritually dead. But God makes us alive and he enables us to be able to fulfill these commands. Now, first of all, as we look at these commands, while they do broadly apply to our relationships with all people, in this context, they're specifically directed toward relationships within the church. Within the church. Verse 25 of uh, Ephesians 4 says that we're to speak the truth each of you, one to another, for we are members of one another. This is the idea of being all part of the same body. Verse 32, there's a one another that, uh, clause talking to the church and how we're to act one another. Chapter 5, verse 1 talks about as beloved children, children of God. These are commands directed toward how our relationships should be in the church. And most directly for us, these verses apply to our relationships with the people in this room. So look around a little bit. What we're talking about are verses that apply to how we interact with the people who are in this room, the people that we go to Sunday school with, the people in our church. Paul is giving direction to the Ephesians church and by doing so giving direction to us as to how we are to interact with the people in church. And it applies to all of God's kingdom, but for us specifically, I want you to consider within our church. So starting in verse 31, we get six negative commands. We get six negative commands. These commands are the opposite of what it means to love one another, to love your neighbor. This is a contrast from what it means to love. And it says there in verse 31, it says that we're to be, put them away from you. Put these things away from you, these six, these six traits. The idea of putting it away is like throwing off an old coat. Don't wear these things anymore. This is the same word that's used when the, when the people took off their coats and threw them at the feet of, of Paul as they went to stone Stephen. That we're to, we're to take off our coats of, of these six characteristics. And so I'm just going to briefly walk through these six items and, uh, and give you some maybe a little better understanding. The six items are bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. So we start with, with bitterness. We're to put off bitterness. We're to take off any bitterness. That's the idea of holding a grudge or anger over what somebody has done to you or what somebody has not done for you that you expected them to do. It's an inside, seething, fuming resentment toward somebody. That's bitterness. And wrath is the word thumos. It's, this is boiling fury. You ever feel wrath? Unfortunately, I can say I have, and I'm going to guess most of us have, that just boiling fury inside of us. And what it leads us to do is usually what we look back on and regret and maybe even are embarrassed about because it, it implies the idea of just totally losing it. Anger that, that explodes. And the word for anger here in verse 31 is the, is the word ogre, which is a settled conviction of anger. It's the natural response to, to settled convictions, settled perceptions of right and wrong. So, for example, if, if someone was to, to harm one of my children, there would be a settled conviction about the reality that you don't do that, and there's going to be anger that comes out of that, right? Well, if you look back at, uh, here at Ephesians 4, verse 26, it says, be angry and do not sin. This is, this is that type of anger. There is a time to be angry, there's a time to be angry, but Paul says, be angry and don't sin. And, and, and so there's this, this context here of, of anger that comes from settled conviction. But the reality is that our settled conviction on which we should be angry about is 
when there is an offense against God Almighty, when there is an offense against Jesus, that is an appropriate thing for us to be angry about. What Paul is guarding them and telling them to put away from them is, is anger where there is an offense against you. If you are offended, Paul's saying, put that off, put off that anger. Don't respond in anger about that. The, a righteous anger is an anger that is offended on God's behalf. And I think too often we try to think that we are having some type of righteous anger on God's behalf when really it's a, it's a self-centered anger. And Paul says, put that off. And then he says, clamor, we're to put off clamor. Clamor is a, is a loud outburst or it's a, it's a, more specifically, it's a public display of anger. This is, this is when, uh, when you're in the, in the supermarket and your kids are going crazy and you just let loose and let them have it right in the middle of everybody. Or this is when you get into an argument with your wife at, at home and it, it's so loud that uh, the neighbors can hear. Clamor, this is something that, that's, that's anger that's expressed in a, in a very public way. And then there's slander, which is kind of the, the opposite. The, um, the, the word for slang, slander is katalalia, which is kind of a fun word to say, by the way. You can tell your kids not to katalalia. Uh, but the word for slander is, is private expressions of anger. It's speaking evil of somebody behind their back. And Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Well, the word for malice is just simply all wickedness, all evil. So what Paul is saying is, is put away all evil from you. And, and when, when you do that, put away all this bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slatter, slander. Get rid of it. Put it away. Verse 27, it says that when we, when we don't do that, we give the devil an opportunity. We're giving the devil a foothold into our lives. And then Paul turns in, in verse 32 and he gives three positive commands. He says, be kind to one another. Be kind. This is the, this is the idea of, of meet a need. Be gracious. Give what is not deserved. Which, by the way, I would suggest in this context, what's maybe not deserved is when we forgive somebody. That we, we've, we're kind and we, we are gracious and we, we give what isn't deserved. We, we offer forgiveness. Then he says, be tender-hearted, be soft-hearted, tender toward other people. Have a heart that's inclined toward other people. This makes me uh, think of Philippians 2, where to consider others as more important than ourselves. We're to have a tender heart, have an inclination towards other people, be other-focused. And then forgiving, forgiving each other. We're to, this, this, this picture of forgiving is to, is to put a blanket over it. Somebody does an offense against you, and you, just, you pull a blanket over it. You pretend it doesn't exist. You cover it up, and you, and you, you treat them as if they never did what they did to you. Forgiveness maybe is, is the greatest measurement of, of genuine love of other people because it requires that we lay aside our rights. We're not inclined to want to do that. But Paul says here we're to put away wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. These are all the opposite of love. Instead, we're to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. And here's where the, the bullet goes between the eyes is we can measure our love by how well we do these things. We can measure our fulfillment of the greatest commands that we have to love God and to love other people by how well we fulfill these things. This is an impossible mandate for natural man. But we're given a supernatural example that leads us to do the supernatural and to fulfill these commands. And so I want to move from the impossible mandate to the incomparable model 
Ephesians 5.1 says that we're to be imitators of God. We're to act like his children. Back in verse 32, we're to forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We're to follow the model of Jesus Christ. We're to follow what God has done for us. We're to act like his children, reflect him as our father. Literally what the word is, is that we're to mimic him. We have one of our sons, I won't tell you which one, has a habit of wanting to mimic Alice when she's on the phone. And I certainly enjoyed doing that, I know, to my mom when I was a kid. Um, Here, we are to mimic God. We are to, to look like him. We're to love like he does. And then it says here that we're to walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. We're to walk in love. How do you walk in love? This is, this is the idea of walking. It's your daily lifestyle. Your, your life is characterized by love. And we're, we're given the example of this. It says, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. So that's all you have to do to, to, to love is you, you love by mimicking Christ, by loving like he did, which is giving his life up for us. He is our example. But note that John 3.16 does not say, for God so loved the world that he made pretty flowers for us to look at. This is not a, this is not a, a, a simple, basic kind of a, of, a, of a love, but John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he took a whole bunch of dirty, rotten, vile, God-hating sinners and he sent his son to die on the cross to bear our sins so that we could have eternal life with him. That's a whole different level and that's the calling that we have. That's the example that we have as to how we are to love. God's love is reflected in his son. Jesus is our model for love. He's our example. So how do we think about that? Well, I'd like to, as I said, remind you of some things about that this morning. And I want to give you three uh, considerations about Jesus' love and I want to contrast those against maybe what our normal natural responses would be in the flesh and uh, draw our attention to, to understanding this model of love that we have. And so as we start off considering this, we, we looked in Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, talked about putting off the, our old self. Well, the first point here is that our old self is indulgently selfish. Our old self is indulgently selfish. Our fleshly inclination is to be self-centered. So when somebody, somebody does something to cause us an offense, then we take offense. We're happy and quick to, to take offense when somebody offends us. The natural man clings to his rights. We're concerned about what's fair or not fair. We're, we're concerned about what somebody owes us. We put expectations on people as to how they should act toward us and how they should, how they should treat us. And unfortunately, even our acts of service in our church or, or our desire to serve within the body, they can be cloaked in, in selfishness. There can be expectations that we receive gratitude from other people for what we do in church or we receive praise or respect. We can, we can have expe- expectations that we have a right to serve in certain ways with a motivation toward gaining that gratitude or respect or honor that we, that we desire. This is all a natural byproduct of, of our selfishness. And it leads to bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, malice. And this is the opposite of love. But on the other hand, Jesus was infinitely sacrificial. Jesus was infinitely sacrificial. I, I want to read you some verses real quickly as we understand this. Um, just about the power of God. 
Job 26 says, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Talking about the power of God. Jeremiah 10 says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. Deuteronomy 32 says, See now that I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. God holds all power for life, death, creation, everything in his hands. First Chronicles 29 says, Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Zephaniah 3, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God's power is all-encompassing, holds everything together. And what does that mean when we come to Colossians 2.9 then? And it says, speaking of Jesus, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells. In Jesus, all that power dwells in human form. Michael read this morning from Colossians 1, talking about how, how Jesus holds all things together. In him, all that massive power resides in human form. And then Jesus displayed that as we think about uh, Mark 5. If you want to just turn to Mark 5 briefly. Mark chapter 5, we, we see Jesus acting on that power that is in him. We see in the first part of Mark chapter 5, we have this, this uh, crazy demon man breaking shackles. And, and what does Jesus do? He he, he casts the demon out of the man and puts him in the pigs and the pigs go off the edge of the cliff, right? And then we see uh, Jesus making his way to go heal a, a girl who had, who had died, the, the daughter of Jairus. Um, and, uh, and on his way, he's, uh, he's met or a, a woman uh, uh, who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years goes and works her way through the crowd and just thinks, if I can just touch his cloak, then, then I, would be, I would be healed. And in verse 28, of Mark 5, the, it says, For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I'll get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth and turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? This power that's in God is in Jesus. And he could feel that power going out of him. And he says, Who touched my gar- garments? And then Jesus made his way to the home of Jairus and and uh, the people are weeping and Jesus says, well, why are you weeping? She's just asleep. And they all laughed at him and Jesus says, Talitha, come, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she did. This was God in the flesh. And yet we see in Philippians 2, but he, he emptied himself. He put aside those rights. He didn't cling to his rights. And what happened? Turn to 10 chapters later in Mark. Mark chapter 15. We see what's ha- what happens here at the end. Mark 15, we see the, the scene before the cross, and it says, And the soldiers took him away to, into, that, into the place, that is the praetorium, and they called together the Roman cohort, and they dressed him up in purple, and after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a reed, spitting at him, kneeling and bowing before him. 
And after they had mocked him, they took purple off him and put these gar- his garments on him and they led him out to crucify him. This is God in the flesh, all of this power that we are talking about, the one who healed, the one who holds the universe together, the one that spoke all of creation into existence. And it says in Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus, the one who could have spoken a single word, and all the people that were torturing him would have fallen to the ground dead. And yet, he was silent. He did not open his mouth. Jesus was infinitely sacrificial. He modeled true, genuine, biblical love contrasted against our natural self-indulgence. So Jesus is infinitely sacrificial. Well, as we consider ourselves again, our old self is intensely superficial. We're intensely superficial. Our, our self-centeredness causes us to have a, an inward focus that contaminates genuine love. And in the flesh, we can be masters of, of superficial love. We love as long as we don't get hurt. That's our inclination. But when somebody hurts us, our tendency is to withdraw, to keep our distance. And we avoid certain people. And this results in this church cliche that says, well, I'll love them, but that doesn't mean I have to like them. I don't even know what that means. What if God said to you, I love you, but I don't have to like you. So I'm going to avoid you. I'm going to keep my distance from you. I'm, I'm going to love you from afar. I don't really want a relationship with you. I'm not suggesting that you have to be friends or best friends with, with everyone that you have the same level of friendship with everybody in the church. Jesus certainly had different levels of of friendship, but, but our love for those in the church should be genuine, shouldn't be superficial. Consider Jesus again. While we're intensely superficial, Jesus was individually specific in his love for us. Romans 6 talks about how we were, we were slaves to sin, And now we are responding in obedience to becoming slaves to righteousness. Everyone's a slave to somebody. Well, how did we go from being slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness? 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you've been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. Jesus bought you. If you're a believer, Jesus bought you. Revelation 5.7 says that, uh, speaking of of, uh, the end times and Jesus sitting on the throne he says and he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne when he had taken the book the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying watch this worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe tongue people and nation Jesus purchased with his blood people for God. This was a specific purchase, not a random sacrifice with a hope that someday somebody would appreciate it. If you belong to him, it's because he purchased you. Specifically, Jesus had you in mind when he went to the cross. When someone sins against us and we hold that sin against them, you know what we're really saying? We're saying that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. His blood wasn't enough. He died for that person's sin, and he died for that sin that they committed against you, that sin they maybe committed against me, and he died to purchase that person 
without waiting for an apology, and yet we're still going to hold that same sin against that person? That can only mean that we believe that Jesus' sacrifice was, was insufficient to cover that sin. True biblical love is not an emotion. It's a self-sacrificing without any expectation of anything in return. It, it mimics Jesus' love for us. I was telling the, the anchored group in the high school group recently that uh, um, we were on vacation and I read a kind of a mindless book, a murder mystery FBI agent chasing down a mass murderer kind of a, a book just to, for fun reading, a little different than maybe I normally would. Kind of creepy in some ways. Um, the murderer actually had some really good theology though. Um, that he applied in kind of some twisted ways to justify his, his killing. But what he would do is he would kidnap people and he, he told these people before he killed them that out of all of God's creation, they were God's favorites. And that's why he had to offer them as a sacrifice to God. Maybe not quite the right application. But his point was that God, as an infinite being, could specifically love each individual person as if they were their favorite, his favorite of all of creation, and he could do that for each person individually without in any way diminishing the favoriteness of another person. It's not like he had lots of favorites. Each person could individually, in their own right, be the very favorite creation of God, while somebody else could exactly hold that same place, and that's only possible because God is, a, is an infinite God. His theology is actually accurate in that regard, that God loves each of his children individually as if they were his favorite creation. Consider Jesus in the, lost, in the parable of the lost sheep and the hundred sheep, and he goes, and he, he goes to, to, uh, to find the one lost sheep. That, that, that's how Jesus views each one of us as that one lost sheep, as his ultimate favorite. Or then to love people as individuals if we're to be like Jesus. What, what would happen if you looked at each person you came and you met in life and you saw them and you said, that person, Simon Goodyear, is God's ultimate favorite creation in the entire universe. How would that affect how you would, how you would treat him and how you would respond to him? And then you could go to the next person and say exactly the same thing. God's love for us is individually specific, and we are to treat our brothers and sisters in the church in the same way. We're not to be superficial in our love. The third point is that our old self can be ironically sorrowful. Be ironically sorrowful. Our tendency and our self-centeredness can be to have a woe-is-me attitude when we feel that we've been mistreated. We can fall into the, the trap of, of feeling sorrowful over having our feelings hurt, over the offenses that we perceive. And such sorrow is, is very real. It's painful and it's, it's normal from a human perspective but the gospel is supernatural. It compels us to respond supernaturally and to not take offense or to be sorrowful. And when it seems like, even when it seems like we have every right to be. But the irony of such sorrow is that it's based on a lack of clarity of what we really deserve, what's really owed to us. We, we forget that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and children of God's wrath, deserving of eternal punishment, but that God, because of his love, has made us alive. While we can be ironically sorrowful, having this woe-is-me attitude, Jesus innocently suffered. Jesus was the innocent lamb, lamb 
like a lamb led to slaughter. Why? Because each of us, we've gone our own way, and the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He didn't suffer because of his own guilt. He suffered because of our guilt. And this is the example of love that we're to follow. He innocently suffered for us. Chuck Colson told the story of a group of American prisoners of war during the Second World War who were made to do hard labor in a prison camp. Each had a shovel and they would have to dig all day and then they'd have to come in and give an account for their tools. One evening, 20 prisoners were lined up by the guard and the, the shovels were counted. The guard counted 19 shovels and he turned in rage to the 20 prisoners and he demanded to know which one did not bring his shovel back. No one responded. The guard took out his gun and he said that he would shoot five men if the guilty prisoner didn't step forward. After a moment of tense silence, a 19-year-old soldier stepped forward with his head bowed. The guard grabbed him, took him to the side, shot him in the head, and turned to warn the others that they better be more careful than he was. When he left, the men counted the shovels, and there were 20. The guard had miscounted. The boy had given his life for his friends. Can you imagine the emotions that they must have felt when they realized what had happened, that in five or ten seconds, whatever the time was, the boy had weighed his whole future and had chosen death so that others might live. John 15, greater love has no one than this than one lay down his life for his friends. But God, Romans 5, demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How can we be sorrowful over wrongs committed against us when Jesus willingly went to the cross for the wrongs we committed against him? We, have, we saw the impossible mandate, the incomparable model, and just as we finish up here, the inexhaustible motive. The inexhaustible motive. There, back in Ephesians, there in verse 2 of chapter 5, it says that, Jesus gave himself up for us as an offering, a sacrifice to God, a fragrant aroma. That we respond, this is, a, this is a picture of worship, that we respond and we offer our lives as a fragrant aroma as Jesus did, that we respond in worship, that we, we know God's love and, and our motive is that we are compelled out of that understanding of his love, that we want to love him. And when we love him, we want to love other people. Here's the sentence I'd want you to take away from this. God's grace empowers us to supernaturally love by softening our hearts as we see and savor his love for us. God's grace empowers us to supernaturally love by softening our hearts as we see and savor his love for us. Jesus not only shows us what love looks like, but he gives us a reason to love. To walk in love is worship. To love like Christ is worship. To love like Christ is to look like him, to reflect him, to give him glory. We were enemies of God. We were, we were spiritual zombies. While in rebellion against God, we were bought by God. We were bought with a price. We were made children of God with all the rights and privileges. We are objects of God's infinite love. We are God's favorite individually of all of his creation. And so what's our response to this? We're compelled to love Christ. We're compelled to love the cross, to love the Savior and what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? The love of Christ controls us. 
We see Christ, we love him more and more, and that love for Christ controls us to look like him, to live like him, to love like him. When we experience spiritual amnesia and we forget that his love is directed toward us, then we respond with bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander and malice, and we trample on the name of God. Alexander the Great was going through his army, and there was a soldier with the same name, Alexander. And that soldier was brought before Alexander for acts of cowardice in the, in the midst of, of battle. And Alexander looked him in the eye and he said, Soldier, drop your cowardice or drop your name. We who bear the name of Christ, we don't want to be like that soldier. We don't want to bring shame to our commander. We want to accurately reflect him. That's our motivation. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We want to bring worship the Lord because we understand his great love and we love him in return that compels us to love other people the depths of understanding God's love for us are, are inexhaustible we'll spend the rest of eternity growing in our understanding of, of God's character and as such his, his love for us and understanding the magnitude of his sacrifice and his love so my hope today is that you've been able to maybe see and savor God's love a, a little more and uh, that as a result your heart would be a little more softened to love others to a, uh, to a greater degree. Lord, we are incredibly thankful beyond what we can express for the, the, uh, the representation of love that you have shown toward us at the cross. God, may we set our hearts on that reality in a way that is deep and profound and understanding and not casual or cliche, but uh, God, that we would be moved by understanding your love and moved in such a way that we would treat other people with love, we would treat them with, with kindness, that we would be tenderhearted, that we would forgive people as you've forgiven us. God, that we would mimic you and we would look like you and in so doing that we would worship. God, that we would bring you glory and honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.